You're listening to Certified, Canada's class actions podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action, thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. We're here with uh, Nicole Henderson from Blake's. She's a partner there. And uh, thank you for coming on to the show, Nicole. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? Why did you decide to become a class actions lawyer or how did that come about? Uh, Well, to tell you the truth, it happened kind of serendipitously. Um, I was a second year summer student at Blake's when I was in law school. And then I went to do a clerkship at the Federal Court of Appeal before I returned as an associate. So I arrived back at the firm in October 2009. Wow, that feels like a long time ago now. Um, And had a bit of a clean slate because I hadn't articled at the firm or in the litigation group and was sort of sitting in my office, you know, a few days in, worried that I'd never get any work from anyone. And a partner came into my office and said, would you be available for a meeting this afternoon? I'd like to get you involved in a trial. And I said, great. Uh, And that trial ended up being Anderson and St. Jude Medical, which I know we're gonna talk about a bit more uh, today as well. Uh, But that kind of ended up being the next, you know, two, three years of my life all told. So. I got thrown right in the deep end, a very steep uh, learning curve in terms of class actions. And then after that was over, I I just sort of continued doing class actions, including uh, medical products, liabilities, so uh, drugs and devices. Uh, And then as my practice has grown, I've done more uh, cybersecurity class actions, particularly in recent years and competition class actions. Uh, and then just for fun, my practice also includes a, a healthy amount of public law, so constitutional, administrative, uh, freedom of information and regulatory stuff, which I've actually found has been a very good uh, complement to the class action practice. Okay, that's uh, that's really interesting. So uh, the, uh, the St. Jude trial, is that the only trial, uh, is that the only case that's proceeded to trial in your experience at the firm or, you know, have others proceeded to discovery or trial? So Anderson and St. Jude is the only case that I've done that's actually gone to a full common issues trial so far. Um, and other than and other than St. Jude Medical, I've really only had a, a small number of cases that have even gone to uh, discover, a full discovery process, that is. So many of the cases I've been involved in have either not been certified uh, or disposed of pre-certification. Um, and there have been a few settlements as as well before the discovery process got underway in, in certified cases. Right. Um, and although I haven't had uh, a full common issues trial since Anderson and St. Jude, uh, I have been involved in a handful of cases that have been determined on their merits otherwise. So either by way of a, a motion to strike or a motion for summary judgment um, or some other procedure, which has uh, been interesting and I think is becoming more commonplace, uh, even as more cases are going to trial. Right. So when you say they haven't, uh, certain cases you've worked on haven't gone to a full discovery process, is that, does that mean they've stopped at the documentary discovery phase? Or what do you mean by that? I mean that although there is no pre-certification discovery in Ontario necessarily, I think that you end up learning um, quite a bit of 
a case through the certification process and there's often quite a bit of production um, in the context of the party's affidavits or it supporting materials for expert reports etc um, and I've also been involved in summary judgment motions, for instance, where even though there hasn't been a formal discovery process, there has been you know, sort of some more informal uh, document production through uh, demands to inspect or uh, questions asked on cross-examination or, or otherwise. Okay. Uh, so, so really the only sort of full discovery process that we that we have to go on and probably that a lot of class action lawyers have to go on is the St. Jude experience. Is that, am I right in saying that? I think there have been um, a lot of cases that have gone to uh, kind of full-blown discovery processes generally, even though there aren't a lot of reported cases on that. Um, but I mean, I think you're right that the, the trend still in, in class actions, whether this continues, is still mostly that certified cases uh, tend to settle, although we are seeing more trials and other merits resolutions. Um, and I think that uh, in other cases, there have been um, there have been discoveries and discovery plans and discovery may have gone quite a bit down the way uh, before again, sometimes you get a settlement or some other resolution short of a, a common issues trial. but I, I agree there's not a lot of decided case law on, um, discovery issues in class actions specifically. I think a number um, for on a number of issues, St. Jude uh, may still be the leading case, even though a lot of the discovery motions were brought you know, many years ago now. Mm -hmm. And obviously this didn't happen in St. Jude, but I, in, in the class actions where this sort of crept down the road towards discovery, is it the same as in uh, a regular action where that process has brought about settlement you know you've had this exchange of documents you've seen more of what the case is about and what your chances are does it perform the same function as it does in a regular action i think in a lot of ways discovery in uh, class actions and regular actions is similar in in purpose and procedure mm -hmm. i mean aside from the fact that discovery at the common issue stage of a class action is limited to the common issues as opposed to the individual issues. Um, the rules apply equally to class proceedings. So the primary difference is really one of scope, um, given how much more is usually at stake in a class action than an individual action and you know the scope and rigor of discovery that tends to come with that. Um, but otherwise, yes, I think it's fair to say that discovery serves, you know, many of the same purposes in class actions that it would in any other action. Okay, so then that brings us on to the discovery plan. I mean, what what sort of push and pull goes into the negotiation of a discovery plan on a class action? You were talking about scope. Is there a lot of, uh, is that very contested between plaintiffs and defendants when they're working out a discovery plan? Uh, it depends on the case, but I, I think that the primary difference between um, individual actions, at least smaller individual actions and class actions is that in my experience at least it is much more common to have a formal discovery agreement in a class action. Um, I don't know if your experience has been the same but mine is mine has certainly been that uh, in individual actions, at least in smaller cases, uh, the rule requiring the parties to agree to a discovery plan is more often honored in the breach right. um, where there aren't serious disputes about um, the scope of documents and it's not expected to be particularly voluminous, etc. 
Uh, but in class actions, I, I think at least in all the cases I've been involved in, there's been a much more rigorous process of counsel sitting down uh, to meet and confer to decide on the scope of discovery and then uh, to document that, whether that's in a formal discovery plan uh, or an exchange of letters. I think that's pretty commonplace in a class action so that everyone knows what the what the ground rules are um, and that if there's any need to, to change that going forward, it can be revisited. What I, what I think is more common in discovery plans for class actions, perhaps than individual actions, is that discovery plans, I think, tend to be a bit more bespoke in class actions. Mm. Um, again, given that the scope of discovery could otherwise be pretty uncontrolled. I, I think that parties and experienced counsel um, are being more creative um, and focusing more on what's really an issue and what discovery they really need uh, to understand the case, to prepare for trial, etc. And, and you see discovery agreements that um, reflect, for instance, uh, you know, more creative use of materials arising out of foreign proceedings where mm. you've got say parallel litigation on in the u.s or um, you know greater use of written discovery either in lieu of or in addition to oral examinations for discovery just things that can make the process a bit more uh, efficient hopefully a bit more cost effective and and, and ideally cut down on duplication in some cases as well mm-hmm. and uh as you know, that happened in the St. Jude action, that a lot of the uh, materials on discovery were taken from the US proceedings. So what complications arose from that or about or from the discovery process in general in the St. Jude case? So uh, interestingly enough, that the full discovery process in uh, Anderson and St. Jude Medical actually predates my involvement with the, with the file. I, I often like to joke that the statement of claim in uh, in Anderson was actually filed while I was still in high school, um, and I and I joined the firm not long before the trial started. But um, as is often the case, you know, discovery issues continued to be relevant during trial, um, and my experience has been that you know similar kinds of discovery issues have arisen in other class actions. And as we both kind of you know alluded to already, mm-hmm. I think a common feature of Canadian class action litigation is that. Um, while this isn't universally true, it's often the case that there's some parallel proceeding um, in the U.S. in particular or elsewhere. But, it, you know, in the case of a product liability case, a, a case involving the same product or in a competition context, um, you know, a similar antitrust class action involving the same conduct in the U.S. Um, and I think that both parties are are usually... Um, interested in coming to some reasonable agreement on what use, if any, can be made of materials arising um, out of a U.S. discovery process uh, or or whatever may be going on down there, particularly since the U.S. process is often uh, moves moves ahead a little bit more quickly and is mm-hmm. often more advanced by the time a, a discovery process kicks off in Canada. So it, I think that you know, there's often an, there's often some agreement or at least a discussion about whether the defendants will produce um, in the Canadian litigation uh, doc, the, the same document collection that's been produced in a U.S. Uh, uh, class action or multi-district litigation MDL, mm-hmm. um, at whether uh, the defendants will produce transcripts of depositions that have taken place in the U.S., 
And if so, you know, what limitations should there be on that and what use can be made of uh, those materials? And, and I think that, you know, defendants often, uh, in many cases, will see it as appropriate not to reinvent the wheel in terms of recollecting right. or re-reviewing documents for production. So they're often, you know, defendants are often willing to agree to provide those U.S. materials, but then will need to preserve rights um, arising out of differences between discovery rules as between Canada and the U.S. or carve out uh, productions, for instance, that are just not relevant in Canada. Um, And then also, I think the defendants have a legitimate interest if they're turning over materials from the U.S., um, to limit the plaintiff's right to make duplicative discovery requests or to conduct duplicative oral discovery in, in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are certainly issues that arose uh, in St. Jude. I mean, there were, uh, although again, I, I wasn't involved in them, I know there were many days of uh, discovery motions leading up to the trial, many of which dealt with, um, you know, kind of run-of-the-mill uh, refusals and, and requests for better answers. But certainly one discovery issue that continued, um, you know, kind of continued throughout trial and that I was involved in does does go to this question of the use of U.S. Uh, discovery mm-hmm. transcripts. So, you know, as you pointed out, there had been an agreement um, in Anderson that the plaintiffs would be uh, permitted to re- to Uh, read in excerpts from uh, deposition transcripts from a number of of company witnesses um, that had been deposed in U.S. proceedings, you know, provided that uh, the same same questions wouldn't be asked on discovery uh, in in Canada. But, of course, one of of the main issues that you have there is that the U.S. deposition rules are very different than they are in Mm -hmm. Canada. You know, a, a couple things. Um, one, you get to depose multiple witnesses in most cases and not a single corporate representative who has a duty to uh, inform themselves. So you sometimes have uh, situations where a U.S. deposition witness is being asked about something that they, you know, isn't part of their job responsibilities that they don't know anything about. Right. And moreover, you know, the U.S. discovery process doesn't have the same procedure we do for undertakings, refusals, etc. So even if a question is objected to uh, in a U.S. deposition or the witness doesn't know the answer, isn't qualified to answer the question, you know, despite that objection being on the record, the witness still has to answer. And then, you know, a question becomes, how do you deal with that uh, in a Canadian proceeding where at trial you've got plaintiffs seeking to read in those excerpts and defendants saying well that evidence would have never been admissible in a Canadian courtroom and if that question had been asked on uh, a Canadian examination for discovery it would have been refused so we ended up having you know several days of motions that were heard by our trial judge Justice Lax um, you know over the course of the trial dealing with the admissibility um, of discovery read-ins, and I and I think that issue of the differences between Canadian and U.S. practice was really front and center there. Mm, that's really interesting. So uh, I know another big push and pull between plaintiffs and defendants uh, on discovery is the um, is the disclosure of class members' medical records. Was, was that a big deal in St. Jude, or was that fairly seamless? At Saint Saint Jude ended up being. Uh, an interesting case in that respect. I know that there was some 
there were some discovery motions around or that raised the issue of whether um, class council was obligated to produce information or medical records belonging to, to class members. Um, and I think that the, the court ruled that there was somewhat limited scope for that. But in practice, um, in that case, the, the plaintiffs were relying, or one of their experts rather, as part of their causation case, was relying on um, essentially a case series that he'd done of a number of uh, a number of class members or others who were allegedly implanted with the, the heart valve in issue. Mm -hmm. So as part of the foundational material um, for that report, uh, there ended up being quite a bit of production of, uh, of plaintiff medical records or, or sorry, class member medical records anyway. So a, a somewhat unique uh, circumstance, but I think that's an issue that continues to arise in uh, medical product and, and device actions, because it's often hard to know uh, ex ante what you're really dealing with in terms of the class. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then let's get on to the actual trial. Uh, yeah, as you said, it's one, it's one of the few cases that's actually proceeded to a full-blown trial in Ontario. So tell us about the actual trial process in um, in Anderson and St. Jude. How long did it last? I, I mean, I, I think, am I right in saying it was close to a year and a half that it was, uh, that it lasted? That, that's right. I right. mean, by any standard, it was a very long and complex trial. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, you're right, it did take uh, over 18 months. We started in February 2010, uh, and we didn't have oral closing submissions until September 2011, and we got the trial decision in, in June 2012. So Although we weren't sitting every day during that time, there were there were breaks. We were all allowed to take a little vacation uh, <laughs> during the summer. Um, you know, certainly one of the longest trials I think that's ever taken place in Ontario. And how much, uh, how many resources does that kind of trial command? I mean, at, at your firm, if 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 you're allowed to uh, disclose this, how how, how many? you know lawyers were on it how, how much time did it take everyone I mean it, this must have been enormous yeah and I mean a lot of this is actually in Justice Lax's decision in terms of um, you know identifying the lawyers that were involved and some of the mm -hmm. things about the the scope of it and I actually went back and looked at the decision in, in preparation for this interview and found um, the paragraph where she'd sort of rattled off some of the statistics so if it if it gives a bit of a flavor you know, we ended up having a joint book of documents. So that's not every production, but just what the parties agreed to put in the joint book with over 17,000 documents in it. Of those, nearly 2,300 ended up being marked as exhibits. Um, and there were 40 witnesses, uh, 23 of whom were experts in uh, medicine or other scientific fields. So a, a great deal of evidence. And then closing submissions that ended up between the plaintiffs and defendants being over 2,000 pages long. So really just in the numbers, you sort of see the sheer size and scope of that. Um, you know, So it won't surprise you to know on both sides that there were uh, fairly large trial teams that were devoting you know, most, if not all, of their time to this case. So on, on our end, um, our core trial team was eight eight lawyers and a law clerk. Although there were you know others from time to time involved in specific issues or uh, students that were helping out, of course. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the plaintiffs were similarly staffed. On the the class counsel side, there were 
uh, three different firms that were involved in the case, but about the same number of lawyers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to speak for, for the other side, but I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, everyone that was working on it was making it a, a full-time job or, or pretty close to, uh, you know, really with a trial of that scope, there's, there's not a lot of time to do uh, much else work-wise. Right. So in terms of, I mean, apart from the sheer enormity of it, did it differ that much from the trial of a regular action? Um, you know, I think, again, much like with the discovery process, a lot a lot of things are the same, um, you know, but for the fact that uh, a common issues trial is, you know, much greater in scope. This one was certainly greater in scope and, and length and, you know, with the stakes being... Um, as high as they are, you know, I think they're very hard fought and very rigorous. Um, the main difference I would say, and, I, and I'm comparing the, the trial experience in, in Anderson and St. Jude with sort of an ordinary um, individual personal injury or product liability uh, type case is mm -hmm. that although the representative plaintiffs, um, you know, did testify at the common issues trial, you know, the trial in many ways was separate from their individual stories, because, for instance, we weren't uh, at the common issue stage determining uh, specific causation with respect to those uh, individuals. So in, in that sense, the that that personal narrative um, that you would expect to see or be more prominent in an individual trial you know, isn't quite there or mm -hmm. isn't quite front and center the same way in a in a class action. And and so even though, you know, we had I think there were something like 138 or 140 days of evidence total. I, my recollection is that the evidence of the representative plaintiffs took up, you know, approximately a day or a day and a half. And, and the rest of the evidence came from uh, experts or from fact witnesses who, um, even though they were fact witnesses, were effectively experts in in various scientific fields. So. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, evidence that's you know, day in and day out, you know, very technical and, and very complex. So it's almost, uh, it's fairly detached then from the, from the personal perspective of the class members and the rep plaintiffs. It's, it's, you're really looking at the sort of 30,000 feet view where you're saying, you know, it's a, it's a generic causation argument, right? You know, it's, is this capable of causing the injury that they allege? Uh, without actually looking at whether it actually did cause the injury in the individual class members. That's right. So, I mean, at a common issues trial, um, you know, generally you're only looking at, at general causation as opposed to specific causation uh, in a case. And, and certainly in Anderson and every other certification order I've seen um, in a product liability class action, generally speaking, none of the common issues um, have anything to do with the representative plaintiff, mm -hmm. right? There's never a question about um, the facts of the, you know, what happened to the representative plaintiff or specific causation with respect to the representative plaintiff. You know, all the common issues focus on the conduct of the defendant, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or general causation, which is, you know, really in a lot of ways a, a more scientific inquiry. Um, although it's a legal inquiry as well, and you know other legal issues like damages and waiver of tort and so on and so forth. So um, that that was definitely one thing that you know looking back on it was different than some of the you know individual cases that I've done since. Mm -hmm. And what 
what sort of common issues were filtered out as the case went up to trial? I mean, presumably it, it, it was more than just the... Um, the trial just focused on sort of three of the common issues, I believe, and there were nine, ten, eleven common issues to start with. So how did those get filtered out and what were they? So there were uh, ten common issues total, good memory. Um, but I wouldn't say that any got filtered out in the sense that... Um, you know, none were decertified or, you know, otherwise abandoned mm -hmm. by the parties over the course of trial. So the first three common issues um, really dealt with the liability issues. So whether there had been a breach of the standard of care by the defendants, and then uh, there were two questions related to general causation. And the rest of the common issues, um, while they still form part of the trial, dealt more with uh, remedies and other uh, legal issues. So there were a couple of common issues about uh, whether a medical monitoring remedy was appropriate. Mm -hmm. There was a, a spoliation question. Uh, there was waiver of tort. Uh, everyone's everyone's favorite up until right. Babstock yeah. and uh, and punitive damages. So you know, although those questions. Uh, certainly were addressed in the in the proceedings and, and particularly in the party's uh, submissions at the end of the day you know i think it's fair to say the focus of most of the evidence was really on um those uh, those more fact-driven issues around uh, standard of care and causation mm -hmm. but it was those questions that came first right i mean there was there was something of a battle over that as i recall yeah one of the um, one of the uh, arguments that uh, Justice Lacks had to contend with at, at trial, or, or I should say one of the arguments that was made, was whether or not um, she should decide the issue of causation, general causation that is first, before going on to consider the standard of care at all. Um, since if you don't have, since if you don't, if you don't have causation, standard of care sort of becomes irrelevant in mm -hmm. the analysis. Um, you know, ultimately, I don't think she really, um, ultimately, the case didn't turn on that really, because she ended up uh, finding that there had been no breach of the standard of care in mm -hmm. any event, which really drove um, the result of the case at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think plaintiffs, I, I guess this is sort of a rhetorical question, but I mean, plaintiffs do face an uphill battle, don't they, in, in establishing breach of duty and, and causation? Uh, breach of the standard of care and causation in product liability cases, don't they? So why why do you think that is? What what constitutes that uphill battle? I mean, I don't know that it's that it's an uphill battle in the say, in the sense that the plaintiffs face um, a burden that's unfair mm. or a burden that would be any different than in an individual case. But I do think that what um, Anderson and St. Jude really brought into focus was that you know, the plaintiff's onus to prove uh, a breach of the standard of care in particular and also causation on the facts and on the evidence is a meaningful one. So it's not as simple as showing that a product um, is associated with some complication mm -hmm. or that it was recalled, which um, the product and issue in Anderson was, or that the warnings, you know, had been revised at some point. You know, the, the court really actually has to look at what the defendants did um, at the material time and assess whether they met the standard of care, you know, without that benefit of hindsight. And I, and on that note, I think that medical product cases in particular, um, 
you know, really raise the inescapable reality that there's no such thing as a 100% safe medicine or medical device. So mm-hmm. one thing that everyone was really grappling with um, and that Justice Lacks was certainly grappling with in a legal way is that all medical products have benefits as well as risks. And when you're talking about a negligent design case or a negligent warning case, you know, those really have to be weighed in the standard of care analysis. And and I mean, it's an interesting thing, I think, that, you know, as we see, you know, in this very particular historical moment, we see innovative medical companies really, you know, doing everything they can to develop a COVID-19 vaccine that's mm. safe and effective. It, it's something that we're all thinking about. Um, and I think there is, you know, there is, or at least there should be a recognition that we need uh, life-saving medicines and we need life-saving uh, medical devices on the market. Um, you know, but ultimately they all have, uh, they all have risks as well. Uh, there's no, no guarantee of safety in every single case. Um, and that's not what the law requires either. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good thing I don't have phone in on the show. Otherwise, the switchboard, switchboard would be lighting up with plaintiff side counsel right now. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's get on to evidence. What, what kind of evidentiary battles were there in the lead up to trial? Uh, you know, what, what motions were brought prior to trial, that kind of thing? So in the, in the immediate lead up to trial, uh, there weren't really a lot of motions dealing with uh, evidence per se. There was a, a motion leading up to trial to add waiver of tort to the list of, of common issues in the in the couple months before. But most of the evidentiary issues, you know, particularly with respect to expert evidence, were dealt with at trial rather than in mm. pretrial motions. Um, and in particular, at, at least by the time we were at trial, there was a you know an agreement essentially that objections to expert qualifications were going to go to weight rather than admissibility right um so over the course of trial uh, i i should also preface this by saying that um you know the parties were able to uh, able to agree through a joint book agreement on you know the authenticity and admissibility of a lot of documents um as business records mm-hmm. so again um you know, and if I haven't said this before, I think we were uh, very lucky in that case to work with, uh, or work opposite rather, with plaintiffs' counsel who were uh, very skilled, very collegial, very cooperative in uh, reaching agreements on things like that. So you avoid a lot of evidentiary uh, skirmishes mm-hmm. uh, by making, you know, the agreements that you can at least about documents in advance. Um, but of course, over the course of the trial, there were you know, objections to documents that weren't agreed to or particular uh, aspects of a witness's evidence. And, you know, sometimes that would be a five minute, you know, exchange in front of the judge. Sometimes there would be issues that we would actually have to go away um, and brief and come back and argue in a bit more uh, in a bit more detail. But, uh, you know, I think for the most part, that stuff was actually dealt with at trial and through kind of careful and cooperative advance work rather than in, you know, a series of highly contested sort of pretrial motions. Right. Uh, And in regard to the uh, expert witnesses, I mean, Justice Lacks actually said that she, you know, she actually explicitly preferred the evidence or at least the the qualifications of the defendant's experts, uh, if I have that right. So do you think plaintiffs are slightly on the back foot when it comes to getting expert witnesses or do you think they have a disadvantage in that regard i i don't think so i mean 
I think that there's a bit of a myth, you know, that some people believe that, you know, defendants in class actions have really deep pockets that can go out and just get the best experts with the best pedigrees and, you know, plaintiffs can't afford that and are left out in the cold. Um, but, you know, nothing that I've really seen over the course of my practice really bears that out. Um, you know, I've seen cases where plaintiffs have put forward very well qualified experts um, and, you know, in fairness to the plaintiffs in uh, in Anderson and St. Jude, they also called a number of very well qualified um, expert witnesses. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't think that trial judges, you know, including good trial judges like Justice Lax, you know, get stymied by the pedigrees of expert witnesses. I don't know that they're looking for the expert with the, you know, the fanciest degree or the most awards and accolades. And when you look at um, the decision in, in Anderson, although I think she found certainly in some cases that the defendant's experts were more qualified, you know, her findings about the credibility of the, the plaintiffs uh, or two of the plaintiffs' main expert witnesses, you know, didn't come down to a battle of qualifications. They, you know, really dealt with more uh, fundamental issues like, uh, like a lack of independence or bias. And she'd found that a couple of uh, the plaintiff's witnesses, including one expert that she otherwise thought was very well qualified, mm -hmm. um, you know, lacked independence and, and testified as advocates. So I think what really emerges from the case, and this is in no way a criticism of plaintiff's counsel at, at all, mm -hmm. but, you know, kind of a couple of very building block lessons, um, you know, and that I think both plaintiffs and defendants are very capable of, of applying. And, and one is, you know, to vet your experts carefully and to retain um, experts whose expertise is actually aligned with the areas and in, in which you want them to testify. Um, and secondly, you know, working with witnesses um, in the preparation of expert reports and in preparation to give their, their trial evidence um, so that they do so in a way that, you know, number one, respects the bounds of their expertise mm -hmm. um, and is truthful and is helpful to the court. And I think that includes, um, you know, cross-examination as well. It, it's not necessarily helpful to have an expert um, at trial, you know, who won't concede an inch. Um, you know, I think sometimes it helps the court, uh, one, just to understand the facts, particularly where the evidence is very complex, um, you know, and assist the witness's credibility if your, your expert witnesses are prepared to concede um, you know, points where they, where they honestly have to do so and, and to do that without, um, defensiveness, I think it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then another huge part of the trial was the electronic side of things, right? I mean, this is back in, what are we, 2010, 2011, and you have yes. this, you have this mammoth, uh, pile of evidence that you're trying to, uh, enter, you know, at the trial. And, what what technology did the court use? Did your firm use to manage all of those submissions and all of, all of that evidence? <laughs> I mean, it's funny to think about now, but you know, our understanding had been that uh, Anderson and St. Jude was one of the very first, if not the first, sort of fully paperless trial in mm. Ontario. Um, which is funny to think about now because I think that there have been obviously a lot more electronic trials since then. And uh, I think electronic trial technology has come very far <laughs> um, in the last 10 years. But to, to give you a flavor of it, we were in uh, courtroom 807 at uh, 393 University, which was set up as an electronic 
uh, courtroom, essentially. And at the time, what that meant was that every uh, every desk, including the, the judge's dais, the registrar's uh, desk, each of the counsel and the witness had a monitor in front of them that would display essentially whatever the registrar brought up. So everyone would be looking at the same document at the same time. Um, and at the time, we were organizing uh, documents using summation, which I'm not sure uh, if that's a program anyone still uses uh, anymore. But at the time, that's what we were uh, using. And and the way it would work would be uh, each document in our you know 17,000 document joint book was assigned a joint book number. And counsel uh, at the podium would, if they wanted to put a document to a witness, would say, you know, Madam Registrar, can I have document one four three two one, and uh, and and the document would come up, and and everyone could look at it, uh, it could look at it that way. So that was sort of the uh, the main way that documents were uh, being handled, and and given the sheer number of documents, I think it would have been much more difficult to do in paper. Um, but another another thing I think was innovative about this trial was the use of uh, technology to facilitate the presentation of um, submissions and evidence, particularly mm. because uh, a lot of the evidence was so uh, so technical and so complex that, and because most of the witnesses were experts, that uh, most of them used some form of graphical presentation to uh, help in giving their evidence. So most witnesses at least were using PowerPoints mm-hmm. um, to facilitate their evidence. And, you know, and often those PowerPoints would be marked at least as an exhibit for identification so that the uh, the trial judge could take them away as a reference. Um, you know, on our side, we also did um, some innovative presentations uh, using flash technology for our opening and closing submissions mm. um, and with a key witness. So you'd actually have um, an interactive sort of program or module that would allow the user uh, to click into different areas or, or different timelines. You know, you'd see you'd see a heading and you could click on it and it would bring up, you know, a video or additional information or actually a copy of a document, uh, you know, as the case may be, um, which was which was interesting. And I think those kinds of trial graphics are used more often in the U.S., but hadn't really gained as much of a foothold in Canada mm. um, by the time that we were using them. Uh, and and very finally, uh, again, this was cutting edge at the time, but uh, as I mentioned, our written submissions were, uh, you know, over or close to or over a thousand pages on on each side. And they were all delivered electronically and all hyperlinked. So every reference to uh, an exhibit or to case law was hyperlinked, which was a, an enormous undertaking um, mm. for submissions of that size. And and again, at the time, uh, hyperlinking uh, documents in that way was, was pretty cutting edge. <laughs> uh, I think we've come a long way since. Yeah, thank goodness. So, I mean, do you think it, it paved the way, though, for the subsequent... Um, the the subsequent progress in terms of, you know, electronic trials, remote hearings, that kind of thing. I mean, now we've got case lines. Do you think St. Jude sort of broke the ice in that respect? Or do you think that's claiming too much? I mean, it certainly was, you know, again, if not, if not the first one of the very early paperless trials. And, And in that sense, I think it broke some ground in terms of showing that it could be done 
um, you know, setting some best practices, but, you know, inevitably, of course, some lessons learned, things that we could do uh, differently. Um, but one of the really interesting things about it, I think, was that, you know, everyone was using um, the technology, you know, from kind of the most junior lawyers. And I think mm. people usually think of very junior lawyers as being, um, you know, very comfortable with, with technology and it's sort of no sweat. But, you know, even the senior counsel on both sides um, and our trial judge had really embraced the paperless idea as well. Mm. Um, and, and we're really working um, with the, you know, with the technology uh, to different degrees. And, you know, I think certainly by the end of trial, we're perhaps, you know, if I can say even more comfortable with it than they might have expected. So in that sense, I think it was um, an icebreaker in terms of showing that uh, electronic trials kind of aren't just for junior uh, junior associates or for young mm. lawyers. It, it's really something that everyone, you know, at all levels of seniority can and should should do. Mm. And how much how much do you think Justice Lacks had a hand in in all of this in in sort of leading the charge, so to speak, electronically? You know, she the Justice Lacks. Um, was a was a fantastic trial judge mm. and the, the decision that the trial would be co- you know conducted electronically uh, if I'm not mistaken predated her appointment as trial judge oh, right. um, but you know she really uh, she really embraced it uh, you know which is you know just another thing for which I really give her a, a lot of credit she was a, a you know a very uh, engaged trial judge uh, but she was set up uh, with a laptop that had uh, the joint book of documents loaded on it and got a, you know, got a little training session from the vendor that was helping us manage that on, you know, how to, you know, how to search documents, how to look documents up, how to view them, etc. Um, and although uh, we would sometimes uh, give Justice Lacks some, you know, aid memoirs or, or things that she might ask for in hard copy, uh, for the most part, you know, we weren't asked for hard copies. You know, she was very uh, engaged and kind of willing to uh, embrace the electronic trial. Um, and I think that, you know, sort of having a trial judge that really bought into it again at a time when electronic trials weren't as commonplace maybe as they are now, um, you know, was a big, was a big help to everyone. And one of the reasons it was so successful. Mm. Okay. And then you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's still a case that a lot of class actions don't go to trial, but they are going to things like summary judgment motions. How similar is that kind of hearing to something like the trial in St. Jude? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, historically, at least, you know, certification has been a pretty low bar in Ontario. And although it's still about, you know, a real live battle in many cases, you know, I think that you know, parties, but frankly, both plaintiffs and defendants in a lot of cases are more focused on, um, you know, how can we get this case to some sort of conclusion on the merits one way or another, and what type of procedure would be best for that. Um, and I think that there are, you know, some cases where um, a summary judgment motion or even a motion uh, to strike is is going to be um, a more proportionate way to deal mm-hmm. with um to deal with a case because, uh, you know, for instance, we've seen cases where, again, medical product liability cases where, you know, the case is really going to rise and fall on the general causation issue. And it, it makes sense for everyone just to get that issue 
ready for determination on the merits mm -hmm. uh, rather than to also have to deal with all the standard of care issues as well. Um, so, I mean, you know, the obvious advantage of, of doing it that way, either by way of summary judgment motion or a, a mini trial, uh, which is something that's been done in BC mm -hmm. or, or some other type of procedure, of course, is that it can be done, you know, far more quickly and hopefully cheaply than, you know, an 18 month common issues trial. Right. Um, I will say, even though people still marvel at the length of, of our trial, um, you know, just given the, given the complexity of the evidence and the scope of what we were uh, talking about, you know, it's it's not a case you look back on and say, well, that could have been done in a lot less time. Mm. Um, you know, inherently, uh, you know, a common issues trial in a big case like that just is going to be what it is. Um, you know, whereas I've had, you know, I had another case, uh, not not a medical products case, but another class action where. Um, it, it ultimately was determined on the basis of a summary judgment motion, which had very, you know, very extensive records, very thoroughly briefed by counsel. Um, but it, it was the case that that particular class action could be determined on the basis um, of legal issues in a summary judgment motion that took a week. Mm. Um, so in a, in a lot of cases, um, you know, those will be um, good procedures to get uh, cases to a determination on their merits. And I think counsel, you know, are really looking for uh, ways to do that. Okay, great. And then I guess my final question is, uh, you know, we've got this stuff in the Class Proceedings Act about individual individual issues trials. Uh, do you know of any proceeding that has gone that far to, to an actual individual issues trials for each individual class member or is it generally you know, the, the filling in a form making a claim whether it's uh, as a result of a settlement or a, a successful judgment do, do you know of any cases that have gone to individual issues trials no so i'm uh, i'm not aware of any cases that have gone to individual issues determinations mm. by way of individual trial or or otherwise um, you almost kind of wish it was live maybe the switchboard would be lighting up right now <laughs> with someone that um, that has an example, but no, for, for my part, I'm not aware of any uh, individual issues trials that have happened after uh, after a common issues trial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if and when we actually get there, what that looks like. Mm, for sure. So is there anything else you wanted to add on, on what we've been talking about? I, I think I've come to the end of my questions now. No, it's uh, it's been a, an interesting trip down memory lane talking about uh, talking about Anderson and St. Jude in particular. These are, you know, all really interesting issues. And even though uh, that case is in my rear view to some extent, you know, there's still a lot of uh, a lot about that experience and about the law that came out of it that uh, is still you know relevant, I think, today. So so thank you for for giving me the chance to have this conversation. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure. Great. Uh, thanks for your time, Nicole, and uh, and have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye now. Okay, bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, 
where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.